0: Yo, mic check. What's up, everybody? You're listening to the Street Pricing Podcast, the only show where proven SaaS leaders share their mindset and mistakes in pricing so we can all stop guessing and start growing. Enjoy, subscribe, and tell a friend. Now, let's break it down with your host and sought after slayer of bad pricing, Marcos Rivera.
1: What's up, and welcome to the Street Pricing Podcast. I'm your host, Marcos Rivera, author, founder, and pricing coach. And today, we're going to change things up. We're going to do something a little different. Today's episode, I'm going to call it the Holiday Huddle. And today, I'm going to bring a team of super bright, super powerhouse pricing strategists who all work at Pricing.io. And we're going to riff and get into some really big pricing topics from all of the engagements and the clients and the things that we've done throughout the year to learn. We do roughly about 100 or so different B2B SaaS consultations a year. And we learned a thing or two in all that. So we're going to bring the team in. We're going to huddle. We're going to reflect. We're going to predict. We're going to do all sorts of fun things in order to bring that knowledge in the forefront for you all. All right. So let me get started by introducing the team. Guys, welcome to the show. Thanks for having yeah. us. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> uh, super, super. So we're just going quick around the room, do a quick intro. So that way everybody knows a little bit about your background. And then we'll just pass the mic. So Emily, we'll start with you. You pass it to Ahmed.
2: As Marcos said, I'm Emily. I've been pricing my whole career and I have done pricing for aviation, biotech, nutrition. So needless to say, I love pricing. So really excited to be able to share that with our clients during their engagements.
1: That's right. You've done it all. You, I mean, if you've ever flown on British Airways and are really ticked off with those extra fees and those high ticket prices, you have Emily to take for that <laughs> awesome work. Now, um, Amit, quick one on you, man.
3: My name is Amit Saraf, and I've spent about 15 years actually in product management. I have done a lot of industries bringing product and technology expertise to industries such as furniture, marketing technology, telecom, etc. And at two relatively large, mid-sized public companies, I led big pricing initiatives. So these were high-growth SaaS businesses.
1: So that's everything. So that's from sofas to SaaS, right? You've done it all, oh, there right? Left and right, right. <laughs> left and
3: right. I like that.
1: That's good, man. You also built a lot of value, so that's going to be super interesting as we get into this.
0: Let's hand it over to Aaron. Aaron, quick one on you. Yes, absolutely. Hey guys, Aaron Mass here. Coming up on one year at Pricingio, where I've completed over nine pricing design programs, ranging from three hundred million dollar per year fleet management software providers to fifty million dollar per year channel partner platforms. Uh, prior to pri- Price and IO, I led beauty sales for FinTech. I held num- numerous FPA and corporate finance roles at Fortune 500 companies, including Microsoft and Boeing. And I love price and packaging. Go, dogs. Dude, dude. <laughs> no, I mean, think
1: about this, right? I mean, fleet management, thinking through some of the key things that they have to worry about, partner management. Pricing has so many different layers, and Aaron has seen the layers, right? And so that's going to be real interesting to, to unpack today if we get a chance. And then just take us home,
4: Peter. Hey guys, Peter Cohen here. Been at Pricing IO about three and a half years. I've been on the data side as an analyst. I've also been on the strategy side, doing more of the recommendations. So I, I've I've seen the pricing problem from all angles and uh, all good fun before Pricing IO. Um, I worked as an analyst and also I worked at in tech at Oracle for a couple of years. So I've seen pricing all the way from some small intermediate startups that we work with all the way up to the big guys. So um, lot of fun and, and different pricing challenges. That's right, Peter. Peter, he's the mastermind
1: behind a lot of some of the most creative pricing models that I've seen out there. And you said you were at Oracle for a little bit, but I mean, the truth is you were doing some sales there too. So you know kind of what yeah. the sales rep goes through to try to sell the value, close deals and things like that. I think that's also a super interesting part of the point of view you bring in. So really good, diverse team of backgrounds. I'm super excited you guys are here because there's no way I could just share, you know, a hundred different B two B SaaS engagements in one show. I need that collective uh, brain power from everybody here to talk a little bit about what we learned. It's been a phenomenal year. You know, we've grown. We've worked with a lot of different, more complex problems this year. I think, you know, when it comes to trying to get creative to help solve some of the some of the challenges and helping companies move to usage base, helping companies create more expansion revenue, or even just completely redefine their packaging and in, uh, in their model to break through that plateau, like we've done it in so many different contexts here. So we got to, I think in my view, sort of dip in different minds in order to bring out some of the best key takeaways. And that's one of the big themes for today. So the other change up is not just bringing, you know, a smart group of folks like you, but I want to distill things down to the one thing or the one big takeaway that you learned, right? Because if you looked at nine different engagements already with uh, Aaron to... You know, dozens and dozens with others, or even just thinking about the past too, you've seen so much, you've seen what works, you've seen what doesn't. You can probably write a book, right? Wink, wink, I'm throwing a joke in there. Right? <laughs> but the, the idea being is, look, we don't got time to cover all the, the the shouldas and couldas and whatas that are in pricing, right? So we want to distill things down, like what's the one big takeaway you would give the audience here from what we learned this year? And then, and just kind of riff on that and rock from there. Cool. So I want to try to keep this diverse. The roadmap for today, still keeping it true to the book, right? This podcast based on street pricing and the way we structure it is going to be rewind, play, fast forward. Let's look in the past. Let's look at today and let's look at the future. So again, adding that angle, let's start with looking at the past, right? I don't know what it's been uh, a good, I'd say 50, 60%, you know, more, I'd say throughput of just problems that come our way from the previous year. Why? I think just, I don't know, just post-COVID, people started like waking up and deciding, all right, I need to capture different value. I need to capture more value. Uh, uh-oh, I'm I'm creating a pivot, right? So we're seeing a lot of that, that traffic. Companies are paying a lot more attention to how they monetize, which is, I think, phenomenal. But also revealing a lot of the things they're doing wrong. They've mostly just kind of guessed at what they're doing, right? I mean... No BS, they always guess, right? That's kind of one of the key things. But after they guess, they don't actually, they know they guess, by the way, but they don't actually go back and fix the issues. They, they come to us or they, they kind of, thump, you know, thumble around and do it themselves. And we've been able to correct a lot of these big mistakes in the past. And so when I think of the rewind in stories, you've been able to help clients fix those mistakes, move away from the guesswork, do it on purpose, achieve some growth, and then also help them build the muscle on the way up. But in all of these engagements that you've helped clients, all these B2 B SaaS companies that come to you and they're, they're saying, "Please help us kind of fix our model," like I'd love to hear the one thing that you think drives the biggest impact in fixing those mistakes and guesswork and the models that you've seen. And is it more than one thing? Of course, right? There's always a bunch of other things or in tandem or combination that work, but there's got to be something that you see like, "Ooh, if they change this, this kind of leads to the, the biggest impact out of all, right? And so I want to throw that. Throw that grenade out there for everybody to jump on and think through, what's the one thing, right, that when, uh, when they change it drives the biggest impact? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to scan around the room, right? Who wants to raise their hand and go first? Otherwise, I'm going to cold call. Aaron,
0: all right, dude, yes, what sir. is it? What's the one thing? The big thing is including too many features in the plans. I see this, and I articulate this all the time, this idea of value dilution, when your features are not matched to the, to the customer or the use case of the customer. So you provide too much in a starter plan, and they frankly have never have a reasons to move up, you know, up, upgrade into into a middle or upper, you know, premium plan because they have the, the entitlements are too generous in that starter plan. So really having refined packages is, I think, where a lot of softwares, in particular SaaS companies, can really start.
1: You know what? That's funny because the tendency to add more, right? There's this fallacy out there. Gee, if I put more features in here, it's going to increase value, and therefore either customers will buy more of it or they're going to pay me more money. But oftentimes that doesn't play out the way you think, right? And and all you B2B SaaS founders out there that are kind of thinking of, well, works for me. I put in all these features. I keep it simple. It's actually okay in the beginning because you're kind of still learning about who really wants what and who values what and all that stuff. But as you you gain traction, as you gain more customers and you learn about what they really want and what they really do. And by the way, if you don't know that, that's a different problem. But the idea of putting too much in the plan actually bloats the plan up and believe it or not has the worst, the worst in that it reverses the effect. It's the opposite of what you might think. Instead of the person thinking or the buyer thinking, Jay, I got a lot of value here. They're thinking, Ooh, I got a lot of stuff in here that I really don't use or I don't care about, but I'm paying for it. So why don't you give me a discount or, or even worse, gee, I'm only using a sliver of what I have access to. Eh, It's not really worth it. Maybe I should try something else. And so that's what oftentimes happens over time when you're too generous and you kind of bring, you know, waters down to value, as Aaron was saying, value dilution, right? But what, what, have you guys seen this play out too, the way I'm thinking about it? Because I've seen it and, and maybe there's something else going on here. What do you guys think?
3: Yeah, absolutely. One, I would focus that on and Aaron hinted at it was, you know, especially in the starter or basic plans. So as the company is maturing and growing, you know, if I use an analogy of a restaurant, you know, if your server brings you a free drink or free appetizer, you know, you're like, Oh, this is great. You have direct value. Hey, I'm getting more food. I'm getting a nice little drink before my meal with software. It's a different element. There's a reason we don't see SaaS companies do cost plus or at least in general, there are a few that do that, but in general, it's not a recommended approach. And so now you've got to think about these starter plans or these early plans differently. And as Aaron and Marcos hinted, you could actually give those extra features, but because it's harder for the customer on an ongoing basis to calculate that ROI, right? They're doing it at the point of purchase. They're doing it as they do the evaluation. You want to really say, hey, what is the goal of this plan? If you put too much in the starter plan, you want to think through Am yeah, I diluting the value of my premium plan? So yeah, that would be my one to build off of errands is really think about that in a double down manner on the starter or basic plans.
1: You, you know, you bring up something super interesting, right? Because at the point of evaluating, at the point of sale, they may see and say, ooh, okay, I get access to all this stuff, this is great. Then when they get into it, they only use, again, a small fraction. Most customers, I think, build muscle memory around the software. They learn where things are, the drop downs, the buttons, everything they need. They kind of just remember that and just kind of stay in their lane. Most users do, right? And so the disconnect between what they think they're going to use, which again, might nudge them over uh, on a point of sale basis, especially if you have a great sales team. And then you have what they actually really do. And this, by the way, brings up another big topic about onboarding, which could really, you know, I think tank their um, the value perception if they don't get to a certain point of value in a certain amount of time different topic but related but the way i see it here is this could lead to more churn because as i had this grandiose vision that i'm going to use all this stuff and then i end up using just an it's you know just a, a fraction or a small percentage of it and now i'm kind of disenfranchised and i'm like paying all this money and i'm like eh, you know what uh, Let me get something else maybe something else is better for me out there so, so that's a super interesting is that the evaluation at point of sale and then the evaluation maybe at, at renewal or later down the road. And if that's a huge gap, that can cause problems. What do you think, Peter?
4: I mean, is, is Amit crazy or? Yeah. No. Yeah. And to take, to take the restaurant analogy one step further, if you get, a, you get a main course and it comes with, you know, it's a steak with two sides, but you only like the steak and you throw out the other two sides, you're going to remember that meal as more 50-50 versus if you just get that steak and you love everything that you have. Throwing in that two sides can seem like, oh, I'm giving them more. Isn't that great? But if they don't eat it or that doesn't suit their palate, you're actually lowering the overall value of the meal, not to mention giving away things for free. So what we always like to do, the way you can solve this is we always recommend and what we do ourselves, we'll look at the usage data and we'll say, okay, how many customers are actually using this feature? And anything that's below, you know, 50%, we say this might not be the right fit for this package. So that's why it's super important to collect good usage data. When we see companies, they you know, they bring on a tool like Pendo, they realize, oh shoot, we've been way overselling this first package. Let's strip all these features back. Then the truth is you don't even really need to drop price that much when you actually find that right size package. So look at the data and use that to rebalance features. So you're selling customers just what they need and all of those extra things that they don't
1: yeah I, I love that uh, first of all the the steak restaurant analogy is making me hungry now i skip lunch thanks <laughs> gentlemen but i mean sure right you get the steak you got the baked potato you got the the overcooked sauteed vegetables right that are kind of salty and all that and you just don't eat those you eat the steak i get it right and the correction is not necessarily let's um you know let's let's create a plan that actually has nothing in it doesn't let them get to value right you don't want to you know, something that's just not competitive or something that's just not going to solve the use case, right? It really comes down to, I, I love the word use, Peter's is like the, the rebalancing or calibrating that plan to really just include what that customer is trying to solve. Going back to Aaron's point about alignment, like with the buyer, right? But also, you know, if you look at the usage data, it actually shows you what they're doing. And no, you don't need like a, a million data points on this stuff, right? I mean, you could just start with basic, you know, how many stuff they're downloading and uploading, how many you know, things that they're they're triggering, you know, stuff like that. Most of the things that you can track have some sort of unique ID going on in the system and you can freaking count it, all right? And just start there. And then from there, you can get fancier over time, but just look for things you can count and then uh, throw it in an Excel spreadsheet and just look at it or whatever. These tools have little fancy dashboards these days. And you can actually see, you know, how that usage is, not just by the way, um, the overall usage percentage, I think Peter's right. You also want to see over time, does it actually go up? Does it go down? Does it stay flat? Because there could be a tendency to use something and then like, eh, this doesn't really add a lot of value. And then you'll see usage drop over time, right? This is like a little cycle. So if you're not tracking usage in your software today, you're going to have a tough time figuring out what people really value and what they don't. They'll say what they say in interviews and surveys and all that stuff. But when you marry it up to the data on what they're actually doing, super powerful to figure out and to avoid that overstuffing plans and bloating them and keeping them, you know, keeping folks kind of wanting what's in there and that sensation that they're using most of it, which feels really good. Emily, just uh, just to add, add a last riff, man, is this all something we're missing in this whole equation? What do you so think? So
2: the one other thing I was thinking as we've been talking to add is the other thing is we work with so many companies that are at that high growth stage and that's great. But to take this restaurant analogy one step further, Amit says they gave you that free appetizer. Well, now I'm full after I've had my appetizer and my steak. What about my dessert? What about that expansion revenue? By offering too much early on, you're really limiting yourself to be able to have that customer grow with you. That land and expand, you're not getting that expand because I'm full off my appetizer. I'm good. And so that was one of the other things I was kind of thinking of as we were talking through this is you really limit yourself unintentionally early on.
1: That is so good. That is so good, right? If you think about it, it happens too, right? And if you overstuff that in the beginning, what happens to that expansion revenue? I always think that when customers feel full, right, just move that along. They're paying plenty. They're probably not using all of it. For example, what's the motivation to buy more at that stage, right? I mean, if you already feel like you're kind of overpaying, you haven't churned yet, by the way. You're still in there. You're still using it. But now the appetite to buy more feature to to upgrade. Think about it. If I feel like I'm paying too much. Am I really going to think about upgrading to the next tier or adding that add-on, even if I need it? No, right? And so the idea is that you do sacrifice that expansion along the way. Like that, is, I think, is a really great call out here. I think folks kind of forget what happens down the line, you know? So the, the overstuffing a pack, being too generous in features, and Aaron, you've seen it time and time again, when we start breaking down different uh, pricing problems and challenges, the first thing we look at is, do they really need all this? Like, is this really the right stuff to give them in the plan? And what most often that I see, and you guys probably see this too, right, is they'll start with their good, better, best that they copied from somebody else. They'll put a bunch of plans that kind of just pass the sniff test. And then they'll keep developing though, right? Like these agile sprints and keep pushing stuff out there. And they don't know where to put them. So they just keep stuffing them in the packages. Oh, great. We'll add more value here. We'll add more value there. And then over time, like the problem, you won't see it right away, but the problem just gets worse and worse over time, which is why we always talk about pricing on a, on a nice cadence, on a nice iteration, keep reevaluating what you're giving each audience. The audience might change, the product might change, competitive dynamics change, markets change. You gotta keep shifting that formula, right, all the way through. So now I think that's super insightful uh, for any B2B SaaS uh, leader listening today. What's the dangers of, of of stuffing your plans with too much? It's a little bit more dangerous than you think. And I think we've seen it time and time again when we're correcting that. But let's pull us from the past. That was fantastic. I want to get into today. Like right now, lots and lots of, of good advice and articles and posts around pricing and packaging and pricing the value and all that fun stuff. And you know me, I really, I can't stand it when someone says, You, you know, just, just price the value and you'll solve all your problems, right? It's it's so much harder to do it and to understand it than to say it, right? So I always like to come with some real you know, real advice, but there's still a lot of stuff out there that's pushing folks to do things, and you'll see it in any Medium or, or Google article. And so the big takeaway for this one, for the play, all right, let's bring it to today. Let's think about all the trends, all the hot topics in pricing right now, telling people to do stuff. I want to get from the team. What's the number one thing folks should not do? I'm going to flip an Audible here. What should they not do? What is that big mistake they need to avoid in just listening to all this noise and trends around pricing and packaging and B2B?
4: What do you guys think? Go ahead, Peter, man. What's up? Well, first, you guys got me thinking about dessert from that last...
0: Nah. Days, yeah. So
4: I'm going to have to kill Don't worry. I made a reservation this, for us. I think for, the biggest... For after.
1: <laughs> yeah. Chocolate chip. Yeah. Go ahead, man.
4: <laughs> yeah. The big thing I'd say to not do is don't just leave your pricing alone for too long. You should be constantly adjusting your pricing I think we recommend like you know at least I recommend at least every two quarters you should be making a small change, and you should probably be doing a fuller evaluation, meaning like all your packages, all your price levels every two years, not necessarily rebuilding everything, but at least taking a fresh look at the entire model. We've seen it, but folks would be surprised we see companies that haven't adjusted their pricing for six, seven, eight years, and maybe the first adjustment they made was just an inflation adjustment from some of the economic pressures we we're seeing last year and that was it but you should constantly be looking at your packaging and your offer mix as your product changes and your value that you're offering to customers change it you should also be updating your price levels and also like putting more thought and strategy into how you approach pricing and i think the reason why cus- companies don't approach pricing or adjust it enough a couple reasons one is it's scary But it doesn't have to be when you have good data. So I would say that's the first thing. And two is companies, they don't often have a clear person who's in charge of pricing. Like Sometimes pricing ends up being a jump ball. That's as a shared responsibility between many teams. And sometimes when I've seen that kind of committee approach, it's good to get different people's perspectives. But sometimes it can fall through the cracks because there's just so many you know, other initiatives going on. New products, new teams being hired, new markets you're jumping into. So don't ignore pricing. Assign someone and stay on top of the ball.
1: Dude, but what, listen, what if, I, what if I play the contra on this one?
4: Okay, what if I just say, look,
1: it's, it's too expensive. And if my customers like it and my sales reps like it, why should I even tinker with it? If it works, don't fix it. Don't mess with it. What do you say to those folks out there who are just
4: like, nah, nah, it's, why should I tweak it? It's good. It's good, but you're leaving money on the table. I mean, your product isn't standing still, your customers are changing, you're entering new segments of the market. Why should your pricing and packaging be the one thing that doesn't change? Like
0: that doesn't make any sense. And you're rolling out new features as well, right? So you're you're driving additional growth and value through your your products. So by having a fixed cost, in effect, you are diluting the value of your product by not maintaining a price to value ratio. Yeah, like maybe another way to put it is if your product and
4: company is staying the exact same for 10 years and never evolving, then maybe, yeah, you should leave your pricing. But if it's not and you're actually changing and evolving, your pricing should come with it.
3: And I'll give you a little product management angle on it as well. You know, if you're in high growth B2B SaaS, you're always iterating and have a roadmap looking forward, right? What features am I adding? What angle am I going to? And one thing in product management, especially when you're in high growth B2B SaaS, is you don't really do five-year roadmaps. We would say, hey, you typically do 18 months or no more than two years. The reason is, no matter how smart you are on your industry, it's very hard to predict that far out. So you want to be able to stay flexible to adjust that roadmap. And you're saying, hey, outside of two years, I'm not even going to guess Because that's going to come as the data comes in. So to Peter's point, similar with pricing, we've seen if you're not adjusting your pricing, one, low-hanging fruit you're leaving on the table is pricing level, for sure. Your value is increasing, but your pricing may not be changing, and you're not capturing that value. And then in addition to that, as you launch new features, do you have the right package? Do you have the right add-ons? the right go to market for your customers. So one thing I've always talked to about clients or talked with, with clients is, you know, think about it from a product management angle. You would never just say, Hey, my product is set fully built in SaaS, So I'm not going to do anything similar to pricing. You need a cadence to keep revisiting it and improving it.
1: Uh, I can't argue with the cadence thing. You got me. Yep. I think that person coming around, right? Playing, I'm I'm no longer on their side anymore, right? Because why should it be the only thing that stays still? Right? It's kind of silly if you think about it, right? The value shifting around over time, but you hear it, and it's it costs time, effort, and money to really pay attention to it. But the payoff is so much higher. Like that ROI on uh, focusing on your pricing, paying attention to it, adjusting it is so damn high. I don't know why anyone would ever ignore it, right? But But if if you're, you know, thinking, put yourself in their shoes for a second, right? If I'm a a B2B SaaS company or I'm a leader there, should I change it every two months? You know, should I change it every six months, every year, every two years? What's the ideal cadence? Is there an ideal cadence? Emily, like chime in here. Is there
2: a rule of thumb? One of the things I've been thinking about as we've been talking through, what does that cadence look like? How do I know when to change pricing? And I'd like to reference back something Peter mentioned earlier around tracking and data. So if you are tracking those key pricing metrics and you have someone who's in charge of pricing and that's their responsibility, they know they're responsible for it, the data will and the numbers will kind of speak for themselves on when it's time to change pricing. Do we notice that new customers are going down? Do we notice that we're seeing an increase in churn? There will be a lot of symptoms that say it's urgent to change pricing, but having that dedicated resource to be watching it and looking for those triggers, I think is so important. And in the absence of that, you should definitely be doing that kind of full review, I would say, every six months. You don't want to do it too often because your customers get confused and you don't then end up with the data to know what it's done, right? You have to let it have time to mature in the market for a little
1: bit. Yeah, that's, I mean, every six months, take a full review. And full review, I guess in my head, doesn't mean you have to turn everything upside down. It just means, hey, should we pull this out as an add-on? Should we adjust the price here? Should we change the, I don't know, the the 10 user limit to 15? I mean, I'm making that up, but you could do those things at least every six months, keeps things on, keep you on top of the pricing and packaging. Again, assuming that you're just a, a standard, you got your scrum teams working, they're pushing out, you know, good uh, product and feature enhancements throughout the year, reflecting that, I think makes a ton of sense. Guys, I think the big message or takeaway altogether is don't leave it alone, don't stand still, don't leave it the same. Yes, it takes effort to do it. It actually gets easier the more you do it. And so doing it at least at... Um, you know, the six month cadence of making some adjustments, I think works, you know, but do what works for you. If it's every three months, if you're like maybe you know, super small PLG, self-service, all that stuff, you know, that might, things might be changing a little bit more rapidly. Fine. If You're doing it every year. You're big, heavy enterprise, 12 month sales cycles, whatever. Okay, fine. The six month rule is kind of a bit more of a nice cadence to think about. And again, at that six months, you may not change that much. You may just make a couple tweaks and move on, right? I love it, guys. I love it. So let's get into the the last one here, looking forward into the future. And everyone's talking about, oh, everything's going to be about dynamic pricing, where you're going to price every single customer, you know, individually, or, you know, AI is going to be doing all the pricing for you, right? All these different trends happening in the future of, of pricing. But what is, you know, thinking about looking forward to where SaaS pricing is going and how it's changing over time, you know, what is a, a future trend or topic that that B2B SaaS leaders need to pay attention to. What do you guys think that one is? Come on, don't rush into it.
4: Peter, what's up? No, I got one. So I think in the (laughs) the next year, we're going to see more diversification of pricing models. I think we're going to see more different types of models and more experimentation. I think in the past, what we saw was the market leader would have one pricing model and then everyone else behind them would just copy it. And so you saw a lot of sameness, right? Everyone was user-based, everyone had the same structure, and people are just copying each other. But I think as we're seeing, there's a lot of pressure to consolidate tools. And so software companies are looking for anywhere to cut costs and, and consolidate. So tools that have lots of extra fat on them or are not closely tying price to value are easy, juicy targets. And so I I think we're going to see more software companies experiment with flexible pricing models that will allow them to stick around for the long term and avoid that budget hack or avoid that perception of shelfware. Dude, juices and
1: fats. Are are we still on this restaurant thing? Because I'm still (laughs) getting hungry. I'm still getting hungry. (laughs) Yeah. Guys, so you're saying more experimentation is happening. People are getting uh, more creative in the flexibility of the models. Now, remember, there was this big fear of, is it too complicated? Oh, no but maybe you're saying there's a more of an aptitude or appetite to be flexible in the model and, and folks need to pay attention to that because that's, you know, maybe the difference between you being on the chopping block, you know, with procurement or you actually sticking around and maybe adjusting what they're paying for, what they're accessing. That's, that's super interesting guys. Do you agree with Peter? Different point of view?
0: What do you all think? Aaron? I don't disagree. I think you're going to see the continued development of of AI powered pricing recommendations. In other words, companies are going to start incorporating through their websites through their pricing pages, intake forms, any type of opportunity to obtain a customer's feature preferences or willingness to pay. And then from there compute a a price, a price point that'll be very optimal, optimized to that customer's willingness to pay. So it's going to be um, more proactive than reactive. And I'm going to see and, and that kind of goes back to what Peter was saying, which is customers are focused on their budget. They you know they have some hit headwinds in the economy. And so it's going to be a win for both, both sides of the equation.
1: No, nah, I mean, AI is here. It's here. It's smacked us in the face. People are adopting it. It's all, it's moving and meandering its ways into other different areas. Pricing, why not, right? It, it detects patterns. You think about all the data that we have our hands on. And yeah, I mean, I think it's only a matter of time before AI plays a bigger and bigger role in determining willingness to pay, determining price, determining what people want to buy. All that kind of stuff. I'm not just talking in B2B SaaS. I'm talking, could be in cars, and could be whatever. Amit and Emily, real quick, Amit, get way in in here, man. Is this, is this real or you have a different opinion?
3: Absolutely. With Peter, I mean, one thing I was reflecting on while Peter and Aaron were talking is just a little while ago, we did a use the Wayback Machine, if you haven't used that. And you look at software <laughs> yeah. pricing from yeah, 10, yeah. 15 years ago, and it's really eye-opening. Everything was user-based or seat-based or subscription. And there was literally zero variety. You know, you've come a long way since then. And there's no doubt over the next few years, you're going to continue to see that. And then as Aaron was mentioning AI, I mean, one thing I'm seeing and hearing a lot more about is usage-based pricing. So definitely with the AI models, you're seeing them really toy with that. And I'm seeing a lot more B2B SaaS companies start to talk and consider usage-based, I think, to get around that. How do we better get to value, price to value? And, you know, how do we look at what are new models going forward?
1: Yeah, there's a natural connection there, right? You have more data points in the usage and then you have patterns that you need to find out. Guess what? You apply some AI, you can find out what's happening a little bit quicker than we used to back in the day when lifting a bunch of Excel spreadsheets and guessing, right? Emily, last last comment. I think man. the last
2: comment, what do you think? just to add to that, is we see that in how we discuss pricing problems At Pricing I.O. today, we're noticing that we're kind of leaning through different packaging than maybe what we had in the past. And so I think Peter's predicting the future a little bit, but I would argue it's kind of right now where we are seeing those trends start to change already.
1: You're right. It's moving. It's mobilizing. And you can type in usage base in Google right now and get a ton of, of different articles. It's here, but folks don't quite know how to wrangle it in just yet, right? I mean, obviously, the more tech forward companies, the more infrastructure, DevOps tools kind of get it but the others are beginning to move along, right? I think the seat or user-based pricing is not completely dead, but it's like a melting ice cube. It's kind of just kind of going away little by little as we get used to the new stuff. Like, I think you guys are spot on. So look, just to recap on all these big takeaways, from a rewind perspective, don't overstuff your packages. Do your work, get the usage data you need to recalibrate those. It's hurting you more than you think. I think on the play side, Don't leave your pricing alone, like revisit it. If every six months works for you, fine, but keep tweaking, keep adjusting. That's where a lot of the gains are in building that momentum. And then this last one here about the future, pay attention, experimentation is here. We're getting bolder, we have more data, we have more ability to process the information. You know, usage base is making huge headways. Don't ignore it, experiment change your model. I think all these things connect, right? Experimentation, don't leave it alone and don't just lazily overstuff your plans, right? It's all kind of connected together. Team, fantastic uh, set of insights for everybody listening, but I still have to get to my favorite question of all. You got to give me that number one favorite jam that you used to blast on your radios or whatever growing up. I'm going to start with with Emily. I'm going to work my way down to Aaron.
0: All right,
2: I'd say to keep it Favorite to game. your theme of 90s hip hop. Can I get up by Jay Z has probably been Ooh. on repeat for me for years. Ooh,
1: that that is a catchy beat. I love that one. I love that one. I probably dance to it more times. It than always I always get to
2: dance. <laughs> <laughs>
3: uh, I know we're not limited to 90s hip hop, but mm-hmm. when I was using the Wayback Machine, as I mentioned before. Hypnotize Me, Notorious B.I.G. I was reliving oh. those days. And uh, we used to play that, yeah, on nonstop, at least in the late That is 90s. another 6 sick beat. And uh, quick
1: quick one, my roommate was a DJ and he used to play that <laughs> jam all the time. And I love it here. So, uh, Peter, what's what's yours, man?
4: A uh, little after 90s, early 2000s, but I got to go with Snoop D-O-double-G, Drop It Like It's Hot. <laughs> this guy, yeah, no, that... Again, catchy, too. You
1: got a little Pharrell thrown in there. You are in L.A., so that makes a ton of sense to me. Ton of sense to yeah, me. Right. Aaron, Aaron, take us home, man. And, and you got to come up with a good one. You got a pretty high bar to hit. It's, these
0: it's a good one, man. Still Dre by stupid Dr. Dre.
1: Ooh, ooh, there still the D-R-E. Yes,
0: yes I like that. Yes, the, that
1: classic as well. Yep. You guys came with it. You guys all went 90s hip-hop on me. I love that. <laughs> I love that team. You it's also came... Age. <laughs> yeah. yeah, And you also, by the way, digging through all the tips and just listening to all your engagements and everything you're learning and reading about, I think the three takeaways are, are top notch and solid. So thank you for getting street with me today and bringing the heat there team. Thank you all for listening and tuning in. Listen, you know, you're going to take these lessons, learn them. It's not going to be a one and done. You have to try them out, be patient with it. And as always remember, stop guessing and start
0: growing until next time. Thank you and much love for listening to the Street Pricing Podcast with Marcos Rivera. We hope you enjoyed this episode and don't forget to like and subscribe. If you want to learn more about capturing value, pick up a copy of Street Pricing on Amazon. Until next time.